to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast for Thursday, August 4th. Derek Van Riper, Al Melchior here talking about how teams are backfilling after this week's trade deadline. So, of course, a lot of attention has already been paid to the big names that are on the move and where they've gone. But who is actually replacing those players in many places? Lots of ground to cover on this episode, Al. Of course, the Juan Soto-Josh Bell blockbuster really stole the show on Tuesday, and we got a little bit of help in the who replaces them because Luke Voigt ended up being the last player added into that swap once Eric Hosmer uh, refused to waive his no-trade clause. That was the way things ended up balancing out. So Voigt pretty easily just fits in as an everyday player between first base and DH for the Nationals. But do you see any one player getting a major boost in playing time in the absence of Soto, even though obviously nobody in that organization is going to step in and offer anything close to that level of production? Yeah, nobody could. Uh, but uh, yeah, given the candidates that the Nationals have, it's it's a, a particularly big gap. I mean, the, other than Voight, the two names that pop up for me are Josh Palacios and Lane Thomas. We've seen Lane Thomas uh, play in extended stretches for the Nationals. I had hopes for something a little bit more, both in terms of home run, home run and stolen base output. He's played long enough. Uh, in the majors that at this point, I think it's unrealistic for me to cling to those expectations. Palacios does, if he accumulates enough playing time, he could help with stolen bases, but he's also the sort of player DVR that we've talked about where you have to wonder whether enough, where, where you have to wonder if he will hit enough to actually get the opportunity to steal bases. So that's a really long way of saying there's not much happening there uh, in the nationals lineup. That's going to be affecting my, my fab bids this weekend. One thing I've really been looking at on a regular basis these last few weeks, especially as we've been looking at uh, minor league leaderboards and kind of doing our level roundups on Tuesdays and then trying to figure out for some of these younger players or quad A types who are going to get a chance at the big league level, how hard are they hitting the ball in the minor leagues? Because I think that gives us just a little bit of a clue as to what we might be able to expect once that player gets a chance at the big league level again. And, you know, with Josh Palacios, the quality of the contact isn't exceptionally high. I think when you're talking about a 26, 27-year-old in the minors and you see a relatively low hard hit rate, something in the low 20% range, that's probably a sign that there's not really a big league hitter in that profile. It doesn't mean that he won't get a lot of opportunities. It doesn't mean that he won't draw enough walks to steal bases, but it just it gives you an idea that you're you're bidding for playing time floor, not for a high talent ceiling in cases like that. I think that's that's at least how I'm starting to use that information. I know those pages, I was asking a couple of the guys at Rotowire, uh, James Anderson and Clay Link, uh, that's from Sports Info Solutions, and the way that's gathered is with scouting and, and video review. So it's not based on you know, TrackMan, StatCast, or any sort of measured things. It is eyeballed, but it still gives you a very good approximation of the quality of the contact a player is making in the minor leagues. But I think if you're the Nationals, you've seen enough Lane Thomas. It's not that you won't play him. It's that you want to see if Josh Palacios has a role on your team in 2023. So I think he could end up being the biggest playing time winner in that outfield mix. And, and cheap steals are what you're hoping to get uh, if you do take on that, uh, that, that that player as a pickup. Let's get to the Reds. 
They have a ton of holes to fill. Obviously, two in the rotation, Luis Castillo and Tyler Malley, both gone. Brandon Drury, who's had a fantastic first four months of 2022, he's part of that crew now in San Diego. Tommy Pham is gone. Even Tyler Naquin is gone. And I know he missed some time on the IL, but when he's healthy, he tends to play quite a bit for this Reds team. So let's start with the two pitchers. I think it's easy to see that Graham Ashcraft has a spot. I'm not quite sure who gets the second spot, though, with two starting pitchers removed from the mix. I've been assuming it's Justin Dunn. And with that assumption, I've not really been interested uh, in making a a move fantasy-wise. There are some other uh, candidates and and one that you you put into the the, the rundown, actually put a couple into the rundown, uh, specifically Brandon Williamson, uh, also whether or not Robert Duggar's coming back. So I, I think that either of them would maybe be a little bit more intriguing to me than Justin Dunn, but ultimately, uh, yeah, this isn't a situation where I'm, I'm going to really be monitoring it to see who fills that fifth spot uh, because I, I think at best it's, uh, and I'm going to steal your term again, DVR, it's it's like uh, NL only roster spackle. Yeah, I don't know if anybody in that group behind Ashcraft brings enough to the table where I'd want to speculate beyond those deep, deep circumstances. The player I like the most in the long term is Brandon Williamson. And it's probably going to be a case where he's going to run out of some innings. Uh, We're talking about a guy that threw, I think, between two levels last year in the Mariners organization, 98 and a third innings. This year, he is closing in on that total. I believe he's at 89 and a third at this point. So you're probably looking at 40 or 50 more innings from him. And he's only been at AAA for five starts. So give him a few more starts at AAA. Maybe we see a late August promotion for Brandon Williamson, but it might just be two or three turns in the Reds rotation if he even gets that at all. So the focus should really be on Ashcraft, who I think does have a pretty interesting arsenal. And maybe because of the Cubs you know, selling, well, not selling as hard as we thought, but Cubs just not being good. Um, the Pirates having a pretty soft offense. And we get a couple streaming opportunities in division, at least for Ashcraft in some mixed leagues down the stretch, even if he's not someone who's going to stick on your roster on a regular basis. As far as the outfield spots go, between Pham and Naquin being gone, is it as simple as just nudging Jake Fraley and Aristides Aquino up the depth chart? I think it is. Uh, yeah, they, they seem to be the best candidates to to get some playing time. There there have been stretches where, uh, even before all the trades, where Albert, Albert Omora was getting uh, some playing time. But, you know, if, if that were to happen, I think I'd be more interested in him than Aristides Aquino. And in another case of a player who we've seen him get some chances. Of course, he had the, the first month, uh, I think it was a couple years back, uh, I believe it was August, where he just just wouldn't stop hitting home runs and then had sort of a, a, a down September and never really approached that initial level again. So I, I think we've seen what Aquino can do. Fraley's obviously uh, intriguing, probably not 12 teamers, but 14, 15 teamers uh, would be intriguing. And uh, yeah, otherwise I, I, I think uh, there, there's not too much interesting going on there. I think if you want to try and figure out who plays more with Brandon Drury gone, it's probably just an uptick in playing time for Donovan Solana, who was already playing a lot, and Matt Reynolds, who already had at least a part-time role. He might get a few more starts as well, but not guys that are necessarily jumping into mixed league consideration for that spot either, given how much they can mix and match uh, to cover in Cincinnati. 
Let's talk about the A's as they try to replace the innings from Frankie Montas. This one also could be answered by part of the return in the trade. I wonder if it's J.P. Sears who the Yankees sent back to Oakland as a part of the trade. I would like to see that. I actually think that there could be uh, a good incentive for the A's to do that. Sort of reminds me a little bit of last year when the Rangers traded uh, and got uh, Glenn Otto in the, the Joey Gallo deal. And then very quickly, Otto was in the Rangers uh rotation and it could just be a, a a situation where there are other options there pitchers that we've we've already seen uh up in Oakland uh Zach Logue, Jared Koenig, Adrian Martinez uh but you know they, it gives them a chance to showcase somebody that they got in in the at the trade deadline so I'm hoping for Sears. I think there's a rationale that makes sense for them to go that route. I do think whether it's right away or in the coming weeks, we'll see Sears uh, before the end of the season. I've been pretty critical of the A's for the better part of the last six months now. I just don't like the returns they've been able to get in general for some pretty good established players. I am surprised to some degree that they didn't trade Sean Murphy at this deadline, but because they've got so many years of control left, they could easily just make that move this offseason and have every team in the league that needs a catcher interested instead of just the ones that are maybe uh, dealing with... um, in-season upgrade needs. So I, I guess that's part of the the appeal of waiting there. And the more I look at the collection of, of young pitchers there, the more I think Gunnar Hoagland ends up being really important. We talked about him, I think, on, on Tuesday as uh, someone they got back in the Matt Chapman trade. He's starting to make some progress uh, in his recovery from Tommy John surgery. So if Hoagland ends up being healthy and hits his full potential, he'll fly up prospect rankings that will make things look a lot better. And then if Waldachuk can come up, who they also, of course, got back in the Montas trade, suddenly they got two really interesting big league starters in the rotation sooner rather than later. I know Hoagland you know, next year could spend most of the season still in the minors, but Waldachuk might be close to big league ready. Sears can hold the spot. It gets a little better, even though it's not the way you want it to get there if you were a fan of the A's. But yeah, I I just think this is going to be a J.P. Sears opportunity, which he was just not going to get if he stayed with the Yankees. I think he was going to be more of an up-and-down guy for the long term, so long as he was a member of that team. Let's get to the Orioles, where Trey Mancini started 91 out of 102 games for the Orioles before the trade that sent him to Houston. I think this is Taryn Vavra getting a little nudge in playing time and you know, I think maybe we'll see a little bit of Ryan McKenna as well, but I'm surprised that Kyle Stowers hasn't been recalled yet because I thought with Mancini leaving, they'd want to just bring up another masher. And I think Stowers fits that profile as well as pretty much anybody else they could bring up to cover those positions. Yeah, and we we may see that still. Uh, I thought that maybe this was going to be the opportunity for Yusniel Diaz. And uh, granted, he has not hit well at all at AAA this year, but he got called up right around the deadline, and now he's already back down. So uh, there could be more moves to come. Maybe Stowers is a part of that. But I think the one thing that we can count on at this part is Vavra playing pretty close to regularly. And you know, so far, he's he's held his own. Um and he's, he's started, uh, let's see, three out of the last five for the Orioles. So already uh, getting some some semi-regular time there. So he's, I don't, I don't think he's really quite up to like 15 team status yet, but uh, definitely somebody I'll be keeping an eye on, especially if he does up his playing time. 
Yeah, definitely more of a, a watch list situation for me in, in mixed leagues than a situation where I want to add some of the players they're using to backfill in Baltimore. I'm just looking back at that trade between the Orioles and, and Dodgers. The Manny Machado trade was the one that sent Yusniel Diaz to Baltimore. And it was Ryland Bannon, Diaz, Dean Kramer, Zach Pop, and Brevik Valera that went back to the Orioles for Manny Machado. I realized Machado was going to be a free agent, and the Orioles knew at that point that they weren't going to re-sign him. But sometimes going the quantity route doesn't bring all that much back in return. I know Kramer's at least turned into a, a useful starter, but that's that's just not enough for a player as, as good as Manny Machado is. Uh, let's talk about the Red Sox options to replace Christian Vasquez. I've always been kind of intrigued by Kevin Ploiecki. I imagine he plays more, but that subsequent trade to bring in Reese McGuire makes me think that these guys are going to share playing time in a big way, and it's not going to be a simple one-for-one replacement where anyone takes on the volume that Vasquez was getting behind the plate in Boston. I agree. Uh, If anything, I could see it maybe sliding a little bit McGuire's favor just because uh, he neither one's really uh, profiling to bring a lot offensively and McGuire uh, rates out as is a little bit better defensively but I agree I think you know in the bigger picture it's going to be pretty close to even and unfortunately uh, these are a couple of catchers that even with full-time play wouldn't be that relevant for fantasy and with a, a close to 50 50 split even even less so So I think you and I agree on something that took place on Tuesday with the Angels trading Brandon Marsh to the Phillies. It was probably the most surprising trade of the deadline just because you don't expect a player with that many years of control to get moved midseason. And the trade was a one-for-one swap. The Angels and Phillies actually made two separate trades. Brandon Marsh for Logan Ohapi, the top catching prospect in the Phillies organization who was blocked for the indefinite future by JT Real Muto. So I, I could kind of understand it from the Phillies' perspective, given their need for a center fielder, a very clear need for a center fielder that they've had for a few seasons. The Angels have had a bit of a crowd in that group of outfielders. And what we were talking about before we started recording was the possibility that this maybe means that Mike Trout's injury is not quite as much of a long-term concern as it might seem on the surface, but also... Maybe this has nothing to do with Mike Trout at all, because when you look at the Angels organization, they didn't necessarily have a long-term catcher coming through their system who was ready to take over that position. Now they have that player, and if they decide, you know, hey, we couldn't get Brandon Marsh to uh, strike out less than 30% of the time, if if they were willing to give up on him because they could get more long-term value behind the plate, maybe it has nothing to do with Mike Trout at all. Well, and we could really kind of microanalyze one lineup decision that the Angels have made since the trade deadline because Joe Adele did not get the start. It was Magnura Sierra starting in left field. And you could, again, maybe probably shouldn't analyze it at all. It's just one game. Uh, but the Angels do have a day game here on Thursday. So maybe it was just a situation of not wanting Adele to play a, a day game followed by a night game. But it, it is curious, given how much slower the Angels have brought Adele along than all of us would like and, and have been hoping for. So just, just when you think that there is absolutely no obstacle in the way of Adele being an everyday outfielder, maybe that's still not the case. Yeah, so I think there's a lot to unpack here with Joe Adele. I think one of the reasons I was surprised that 
that Marsh was traded is that Adele has been the player that they've sent down to AAA this year. Brandon Marsh has not been sent down. He's played 93 games in the big leagues, 36.2% K rate. Hard hit rate has dropped off from where it was a season ago. Last year in the the partial season we saw, and Marsh was coming off of a, a shoulder surgery when the 21, 2021 season started, he had good quality contact numbers. So you could look at that high K rate and say, first time big leaguer, showed the ability to draw walks in the past, K rate should come down a little bit. This all looks like it's going to work, especially for a guy who plays great defense in center field. But they've been kind of strange about how they've even deployed Marsh defensively. You know, we thought Trout was moving to a corner. They didn't want to do that. They were putting Marsh in the corner. We thought Adele was going to play a lot. Taylor Ward broke out, and Adele ended up being an up-and-down guy. So if you told me just three days ago, the Angels are going to trade one of their young outfielders, I would have said, oh, someone else thinks they can fix Joe Adele, and the Angels are ready to move on, and good for everyone involved. So that was the surprising part for me, just based on their internal usage. And then it's a good call that, you know, in a situation where you'd assume the the goal would be to play Joe Adele every single day, unless he just needs rest for like a physical reason, let him figure as many things out against big league pitching as possible. This is a lost season and try and see if you can help him unlock some of the stuff we've seen at AAA. Now, at AAA this year, Joe Adele has spent 40 games at Salt Lake City, 40 games now with the Angels. The K rate's still been pretty high, even in the minors. 31.1% at AAA right now is a concern. Adele still age-appropriate for the level. He's still just 23 years old. He turned 23 back in April. I guess the, the question that I'm dancing around is, do you still believe in Joe Adele long-term as at least an everyday quality outfielder, someone that hits for power, maybe has a little bit of a batting average downside, runs a bit, but plays enough to be good in counting stats, very strong in, in, in the power categories, and ultimately you know, uh, gets to the point where we're talking about him, at least as a, a player that the Angels didn't miss on as a first rounder, or that the prospect community didn't miss on as a very highly regarded prospect for a long time. I think if he does get that opportunity, as you were saying, DVR, to, to actually work things out as an everyday player at the major league level, I think that he could still be that player that we we envision. And you know, think back to, to Byron Buxton and how many uh, seemingly false starts there were early on in his career. So I think that there's still plenty of time for Joe Adele to be at least closer to the type of player that we were, were projecting and and hoping for, and even just I'm thinking back to, you know, back in March and drafting and having a, a projection for what I thought Adele could do this year. And I thought he could be like a, you know, 250 hitter with 20 home runs and, and some decent run production. So that's not, not going to happen this year, maybe, maybe next year, but uh, the Angels have to start letting him play. Yeah. And they also got outfielders back or one outfielder back in the second trade they made with the Phillies, Mickey Moniak, the former number one overall pick comes back to Anaheim. You mentioned Magnus Sierra. He was in the organization, I think already. So he's up on the big league roster right now. Trout's on the IL. Once Trout comes back, someone gets pushed off the roster. I'm not even going to guess who that actually is right now, given how difficult it's been to predict how the angels want to manage this position group. I'm kind of out on Moniac by now, like most people. I, I'm surprised that that they missed this badly with the first overall pick. I just you don't see that happen very often. I'm wondering though if a fresh start at least takes some of the expectations off of Moniac, and, and maybe 
enables him to become a productive fourth outfielder. I mean, if that's the outcome, sure, it's not what you expected for a guy that went 1-1 in the draft, but he's at least a contributor in the big leagues if he can land that role. Yeah, I think that he could be that um, for sure. And I don't put uh, I don't put much stock at all in spring training, but recall that. I mean, he did have a very good spring and was generating a little bit of buzz uh, back in March. So uh, yeah, again, he would need some opportunities to play, not necessarily every day, but play play somewhat of a significant role and we'll we'll see if that happens i mean it's it's still a, a, a not as crowded as it was but still kind of a crowded situation and again the fact that sierra gets that first starting nod after the trade deadline he's not somebody i would have figured would be prominent in the, the outfield picture picture for the angels uh at this point and maybe that's a a signal that he will be Sierra is another one of those players. We talked about Josh Palacios earlier, where you're just not sure about the quality of the contact. I'm even more concerned about the quality of the contact from from Sierra because he's one of the smaller players in the big leagues. And you you can just kind of see how teams are willing to challenge him inside the zone, especially. But if he plays enough, there's another cheap speed profile, probably better suited for AL only leagues, just given the lack of, of certainty about his long term roster spot. The other trade that the Angels made was uh, Noah Syndergaard going to Philly. So that's you know part of how Moniak came back into the organization. Uh, and Rysel Iglesias is gone now, too. So as you look at this rotation and this bullpen, uh, Tucker Davidson came back in the Iglesias deal. I think he gets a pretty clear path into the Angels rotation, which he did not have in Atlanta in the short term. No, uh, although it's not, I mean, it's it's definitely a better situation than uh, the Atlanta organization. There's clearly a lot more quality there that he would have to compete against. But the Angels, even with going with six starters, there's there is some depth there, even if it's not the same quality as what you have in Atlanta. So I would think that Davidson would be in that rotation from here on out. But you've got uh, you know you've got Jansen Junk, you've got Chase Silseth. Uh, till Seth's been up and down. So I, you know, it remains to be seen how uh, all these pitchers get used. But to me, Davidson is definitely the best of that kind of borderline group. And uh, I think he's got some, some 15 team uh, appeal. In fact, I put a, a very ill-advised, uh, pretty big bid on Davidson in 15 team TGFBI back in April. Cause I thought he was going to last as the, as the Braves fifth starter. Uh, so, you know, still very much the same profile four months later, uh, still worth a, a bid in, in those kinds of leagues. Yeah, I think in 15-team mixed leagues, there might actually be something there. Uh, we talked about the AL West having a couple of soft landing spots at the bottom of the division. Unfortunately, being a member of the Angels rotation, you don't get to face the current iteration of the Angels lineup, which would be ideal if you were Tucker Davidson. But I, I think there's at least something here now and he was almost unrosterable outside of mono leagues uh, prior to this trade. Is there anyone you like in the bullpen to step into the Iglesias role, or are you looking at the Angels as a team that might throw us a dreaded closer by committee? Ah, they've done it before. Um, yeah, there is really nobody in this group that that stands out. Uh, I suppose if I if I had to throw a dart, probably be uh, Ryan Tabera, but uh, I'm I'm probably just avoiding this situation. Yeah, it's kind of gross uh, to put it. Mildly, the Tepera versus Loop uh, battle is one that I'd like to see. I think Loop has been used in a lot of different roles, though, so I don't know if they would really want to 
commit to using him only in those save situations at the end of a game. So I think that's something that's working against him. I think I'm with you as far as being more interested in Ryan Tapera than most of the alternatives. Uh, but definitely, uh, I think a, a strange deadline in some ways for the Angels, but they did some things they actually needed to do. And we, I think we've talked about Logan O'Hoppy on this show before. I know he was a prospect of the week selection once on rates and barrels as well. Uh, definitely a good long-term player if they got back as part of that Brandon Marsh trade. Unrelated to the trade deadline, I saw this go by on Twitter on Wednesday night. I think it was from Sam Blum, who covers the the, the Angels for The Athletic. What is going on with Jared Walsh? I mean, I thought Jared Walsh was a, a pretty solid fringe top 10 first base bat in fantasy going into this season, and he has been struggling in a big way, especially in the last six weeks or so. The power has just about disappeared. What do you make of this uh, significant drop-off in performance for him where the K rate is almost at 30% for the season and the walk rate has dipped back down to 5.2%? Well, it, it's those stats that concern me more than, you know, say the, the ISO or the, the home run count. Uh, but I mean, they're affected. If he's making less, less contact, then obviously there's, those are fewer opportunities for him to hit home runs. But Walsh is, is one of the more curious cases, um, this season and especially the last couple of months because, the go-to stat that I always look to when I see a player like this who's either surging or fading in terms of power is average exit velocity on flies and liners. It's not only been consistent all year long for Walsh, he's actually had he has a career high in that stat. 94.5 miles an hour, uh, average exit velocity on flies and liners, which is good. It's not great, but it's definitely above average. It's definitely something that doesn't look out of uh, out of whack if you've got a hitter that's like on a on a 30 home run pace. So maybe there there's some positive regression on the way for Jared Walsh, but I would like to certainly see him uh, make make more contact because that would that would go a long way, I think, towards uh, restoring his fantasy value. Yeah, I just broke it out uh, by uh, game log on Fangraphs. If you go back to June first for Jared Walsh, so about two months, almost two hundred plate appearances. Just three home runs during that span since June 1st, a 64 WRC plus. It's a 214, 254, 337 line, 29.4% strikeout rate, 4.1% walk rate. I thought he was going to be really well positioned for RBIs and even an uptick in runs, having at the time a healthy Otani, a healthy Trout, a healthy Anthony Rendon. I just thought that was going to make the floor for Walsh really stable. I realized injuries have significantly altered the outlook for the offense as a whole in Anaheim. But even with that, I just figured Walsh was solid enough to be at least a league average hitter because of the plate skills he showed us a year ago. Now he's a bit of a question mark for me going into next season. Let's move on to another pretty surprising trade, not because of the Mets wanting Darren Ruff for some added thump, but because they sent back J.D. Davis and a few prospects to get that upgrade. So for me, this is less about what's Ruff going to do with, with the Mets. I think he's just a really good lefty masher that can do some damage against righties, come off the bench, and they're going to be happy with him there. But I'm really intrigued by J.D. Davis working with the Giants hitting coaches to see if he can take some of that hard contact, some of the things that have made him pop on leaderboards in the past, and actually start to deliver on that more consistently in San Francisco. Yeah, I am too, because every time that I come across that trade listing as I'm you know scrolling through all the deadline deals, 
And I keep thinking I'm misreading that one. Like the rough for Davis seems like that would have been like a one for one. Uh, not, you know, throw in, you know, for example, uh, Thomas Sapucky, who could be in the Giants rotation uh, in the not too distant future. So, uh, yeah, it, it's puzzling. And maybe one of the things that the Giants like is that Davis has been just hitting with a ton of power this year. And he's done it in the past. But again, it's one of these situations where you see with players, it seems like DVR and every show we talk about one or two players with this profile who just hits with a, a very high exit velocity, but they strike out a lot. They're, they're pulling the ball all the time. It's just, it's overkill. And um, with Davis, it's a little bit of a slightly different profile because he does strike out way too much, but he doesn't pull the ball enough. And I just wonder if there's something that the Giants can do with his approach or his swing that would allow him to tap into that power. And just to, for a, a contrast here, just talked about Jared Walsh with what I characterized as an above average uh, exit velocity and flies and liners, 90, 94.5 miles an hour. Davis this season is averaging 98.9 miles an hour. It's one of the highest rates in the majors, and he has almost no power output to show for it. So maybe that's maybe that's the clue here as to why the Giants are investing so much in him. Yeah, and I think it's interesting he started. Davis started against the Dodgers. I think he went one for four on Wednesday night. Here's here's the hot take of the day. And this is this is definitely my brand is to have hot takes. I think the Giants are going to end up getting more long-term value in the return that they got for Darren Ruff than the Orioles got in that Manny Machado trade 4 years ago that we talked about earlier. Because between the like like Sapucky who you mentioned, even if he's a lefty reliever for them, great. Like a 6-7 inning lefty reliever has value. I think Davis can end up doing a lot of the things Ruff was doing for this team. I just think there's there's enough things that Dar- that that JD Davis does as a hitter, even though there are pretty wide ranges in ground ball rates, strikeout rate. He his profile has fluctuated a lot, but there's been that consistent underlying high quality of contact throughout his time with the Mets. And I just think the Giants are one of those organizations that have a great chance of unlocking that. So the playing time, in addition to uh, being up, I think, is is already like a reason to think about him in deeper mixed leagues. But the skills might actually come back, and we might get the the Frankenstein version of JD Davis. That's the best version yet, to borrow a term from Eno. I think he's he's kind of asked this as more of an open question: Can you take the best part of a hitter's profile over two, three, four seasons, and can you actually coach him to the point where all of those skills get consolidated at once? Because sometimes it's a give and take, right? If you you strike out more. Well, maybe you're making harder contact when you connect. So that's the trade-off that at a certain point makes some sense. And then if you go too far with it, you're striking out too much. You're hurting your team because you're you're at a 35 or 40% K rate. So really interested to see what the Giants can do there and, and just how some of those prospects they got back from the Mets end up having some kind of small role for the Giants in the years ahead. Uh, we think we got this one figured out. Diamondbacks replacement for David Peralta, one of the most likely trades at the deadline. It's still Jake McCarthy as we expected, right? Well, yes and no, because he was already getting a good deal of playing time just in probably the week or so before uh, Peralta was traded. So it, it still seems like there's room there for somebody else to benefit. And as the roster is constructed right now, it, it seems like the main potential beneficiaries would be uh, Emmanuel Rivera and Seth Beer. And they have to they have the moving parts to do it, but um, 
you know, to get Rivera, I think he started on uh, Wednesday at third base. So uh, they moved, you know, moved the players around so that uh, he was able to be in the lineup and, and, you know, still have uh, outfield and DH covered. But I think neither, I think each of those players has some appeal if they play enough, both have some, some power potential. Um, But I don't know that either one's going to play enough to, even if, if things work out in the best possible way, I don't know that either one will play enough to for it to really matter in, in mixed leagues. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, every time I, I catch a game on the radio, uh, a Diamondbacks game, that is, I hear the announcers talk about Josh Rojas's arm just being amazing. And part of their shuffle with Emmanuel Rivera coming in through a trade that sent Luke Weaver to Kansas City, that was one of the other kind of random, unexpected trades, pretty small trade, but... Rivera is this new position player added to the mix that could make things more difficult for a few of the other Diamondbacks. You're right about McCarthy already playing a lot, so maybe he just goes from 80% share to 95% share, and it's not that much of a difference. And then it is Rivera who ends up scooping up the largest gains. But Rojas moving to second, Cattell Marte was the DH for that game on Wednesday. They kept Alec Thomas in center. Varsho was in right. They kept Christian Walker at the deadline, so he's the regular first baseman right now. And they've already made the move at shortstop with Geraldo Perdomo getting the, the bulk of the time at shortstop lately. So it does seem like McCarthy is the direct Peralta replacement, but Beer being on the roster is going to work in. They're starting to have a little more positional flexibility than they had previously. And I think that's going to make figuring out their playing time more difficult once they bring up their next wave of prospects early next season. I mean, especially Corbin Carroll, because Corbin Carroll is one more guy that when he is up, he will play every day. He is a fixture. He is a heart of the order, your best offensive player type hitter. So they're going to be more interesting because they're going to be deeper once they bring up a player like that. And what you talked about in terms of the way that they they got Rivera into the lineup, that also complicates things for some scenarios that we, we've talked about in some previous episodes. Not only Corbin Carroll, I've brought up Dominic Fletcher a lot in recent weeks. Uh, so Rivera's presence there makes it a little bit more difficult for him. I'd kind of like to see Stone Garrett get a shot uh, because of, of the season that he's had in AAA. But at this point, they're they're pretty well set. I mean, there's nothing to say that Rivera can't get sent down or, or put into a, a bench role. Um, you know, Seth Beer goes back down. But as of right now, I'm not sure that, forget about Corbin Carroll, I'm not sure that I even see the room for some other minor leaguer to come up and make an impact. We were pretty confident also that the Cubs were going to trade David Robertson. I think we didn't quite understand that Scott Efros might be on the move too because he had several years of control left and he was among the names I thought would maybe be candidates to close for the Cubs, but the last three pitchers to record a save for the Cubs, Robertson, Scott Efros, and Michael Givens, are all gone to the Phillies, the Yankees, and the Mets, respectively. Is it Rowan Wick, who could just go with the stick with Wick uh, tagline or campaign line, a slogan if he he ever ran for office and was running for re-election or became the closer and was trying to campaign to remain the closer? Well, and you know, that, that context there of, you know, campaign to be the closer, you go with the, the team abbreviation, stick with Wick and Chick. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's your turf. That's <laughs> take, take it at a level, a level further for better, for worse. Uh, and, and who else, who else could it be? Um, I don't see anybody else really emerging there uh, in, out of that bullpen. I don't think he's necessarily going to be all that effective, but I think uh, Wick is the one who gets the chances. Yeah, I think, 
he throws hard. He's been in the bullpen for a few seasons. Just does a few things that I think open the door for that first opportunity. They could easily be the kind of team that mix and match and don't really choose a closer. They don't win enough games for it to matter. That's possible as well. Um, the name that I hadn't thought much about prior to recently is Brandon Hughes. He looks pretty good in the pitching model. Very productive so far with a 318 ERA, a 113 whip, and 36 strikeouts in 28 and 30 innings so far this season. So, you know, a lefty that could emerge for a higher leverage role for the Cubs after all of these departures in the bullpen. Al, before we go, any other observations from the deadline? Anybody else backfilling into spots that you think might actually be kind of intriguing for us? I mean, we'll get a chance to talk more about some of these players on the waiver wire episode on Friday, but any other trades that intrigued you? Uh, well, a couple of. Uh, one is Eric Hosmer going to to Boston, and I took a closer look look at him uh, for for a column that'll be up uh, a little bit later on Thursday. And it's just you know, we have maligned him so much in terms of fantasy because he's just never uh, consistently lofted the ball and provided the power that we you know crave for our our fantasy rosters. But he, he hit you know he hit for average this year even with next to no power, and he's getting. For the type of hitter that Hosmer is, he's getting a really significant uh, home park factor upgrade uh, going from the Padres, uh, going from Petco Park, which is not very good for singles and doubles, to going to one of the best parks for singles and doubles. So I think that Hosmer will play a lot for the Red Sox, and I I think he'll be a little bit more productive there. I don't think he's going to hit for any more power, but uh, I think he's somebody who... Actually, if if you didn't need home runs and we're at the stage of the season where you and I are talking a lot about categorical needs, if, if home runs isn't one of them, I think Hosmer starts to work his way into the 12-team conversation uh, in, in Boston. And on the other side of it, um, in Cincinnati, now we talked about uh, all the, the vacancies that have to be filled there. One of the players that's that's been called up is Jose Barrero. Uh, even though he has not had a very good year at AAA, uh, did get a start on Wednesday. And I wonder if maybe just because the Reds are not just going full, you know, full, full rebuild, uh, if this is the end for Cal Farmer as a starter. And I was surprised to see DVR that he's got 50 RBIs and 39 runs scored this season. So kind of in that similar mold as, as Hosmer, maybe not the same batting average upside, but for run production, Farmer's been kind of useful. And I wonder if Barrero gets a shot at shortstop, but doesn't really do anything with it. If Farmer is somebody who could be useful in those run production categories down down the stretch. Yeah, I guess they could also. They've in the past when they when they gave Barrero his first look in the big leagues, they moved him around a bit defensively. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see if they move him or if they try to move Kyle Farmer into a super utility role. I mean, I, they'll find a way to make the pieces fit. Um, I think with all the the infield talent they brought back at the deadline and guys they've already had in the organization, they're probably going to want to figure out what players they currently have at and around the big league roster can actually do up the middle and then find better homes for them if they don't expect them to stick or be trade pieces because you want the roster to eventually come together in the best possible way. And I think Barrero, more so than Farmer, makes sense as someone that might actually be on the next playoff team in Cincinnati. I think I could definitely see that. But it has been a weird year for him at AAA. I think it was a wrist injury that cost him a lot of time. Might just be knocking off the rust at that level. I would probably think about him as a low-bid player for very deep leagues, especially because there's a nice power-speed combo there. More details on all of that, of course. Tomorrow, though, our waiver episode will run 
4 o'clock Eastern. If you want to join us live on YouTube, we're on the Athletic Fantasies YouTube page. So be sure to subscribe to that channel and be prepared to watch that live. Otherwise, catch the pod version right here in this feed. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you on Friday. Thank you.